Hi again. We're on to chapter 16, In Between the Stars. Sky returned from Boston that evening, laden with gifts that Jeffrey sent home with the family. There was a new eyeglasses case for her father. So you won't lose your glasses all the time, explained Sky. I told Jeffrey you'd just lose the case, but he said we could only try. Very wise, said Mr. Penderwick, admiring the new case. For Rosalind, Jeffrey had sent a pair of rose clippers. For your firm Briata Bush. Oh, and Churchy said to tell you that Cagney is going to start teacher training classes in January. She thought you'd be pleased. I am. Rosalind glowed, remembering long talks on summer nights about Cagney's teaching and how nice it had been to talk to a mature man instead of, well, instead of an immature boy. Skye reached into the gift bag again and pulled out a gigantic bone for Hound, who shoved it under the couch for safekeeping. Next out was a great roll of neckties, which Skye handed to Batty. Jeffrey's mother is sending him a tie from every country she and Dexter go on to their honeymoon. She paused while everyone shuddered at the idea of Dexter and Mrs. Tifton, no, Dupree, on a honeymoon, especially a honeymoon that covered lots of countries. Since Jeffrey doesn't wear ties, he figured you might like to have them. Batty did like having the ties. She was already smoothing them out and looking at the funny pictures on each. She chose one with tiny Eiffel Towers to drape across Hound's back. Only Jane was left, but it was obvious to her that the gift bag was now empty, which meant that Jeffrey had sent everyone a present but her. She felt like crying. But did Rainbow cry when the priest pointed the knife at her chest? No. Well, she wouldn't cry either. Skye folded up the bag and pulled out an envelope from her back pocket. This is for you, she said, giving it to Jane. Inside the envelope was a piece of sheet music. The notes were all in pencil, and at the top was a title in Jeffrey's handwriting. Prelude to Sabrina Star, read Jane, without understanding what she was looking at. Jeffrey wrote you a piano piece. Skye didn't know she was pouring balm on a badly wounded heart. If you'd visited instead of me, he would have played it for you. But since you didn't, he sent you the sheet music. I told him you can't read notes, but he sent it anyway. I will learn to read notes, Jane reverently clasped it to her. He hadn't forgotten her. I will treasure it always. Where's your present, Skye? asked Batty. Skye murmured vaguely, for she didn't want to share her present, yet she didn't want to lie about it either. No one noticed her evasion. They were all otherwise occupied. Mr. Penderwick with hunting for his glasses to put into his new case. Rosalind with actively not thinking about Tommy. Jane with try trying to fathom the sweet mysteries of musical notes. And Batty with deciding which of her new ties was her favorite. The one with the little tulips, the one with the little pagodas, or the one with the little cheeses. Seeing her chance, Skye slipped out of the room and up the stairs. Her weekend in Boston had been wonderful, but she had missed her room, at least until she opened the door and went in. What the heck? Whole piles of Jane's flotsam and jetsam had drifted into Skye's side of the room. Someday she would really put a white line down the middle of the room. She swore it. For now, though, she shoved aside the worst of it and then res resolutely turned her back on the mess. Now for my present, she said. It was in her suitcase, 
wrapped carefully in a nest of tissue paper. A mug emblazoned with the name of Jeffrey's school. Wellborn Hughes. Skye gave it a quick polish with her sleeve, then opened her sock drawer, for she was going to hide the mug where no one would ever see it, or worse, get any ideas about drinking from it. She wasn't even going to drink from it herself. Not ever. She was going to keep it just so to help her remember this weekend. Every minute of it. The ride on the subway, when they almost lost Churchy because Jeffrey kept daring Skye to switch cars. Her first ever taste of potato pancakes at the tiny delicatessen where Jeffrey ate five bagels with lox and cream cheese. The visit to the Museum of Science, where Jeffrey and Churchy patiently sat with her twice through the show at the planetarium. The pickup game of soccer in the hallway of Jeffrey's dormitory, and hiding with Jeffrey under his bed while his dorm master searched high and low for the rowdies who'd been playing pickup soccer in the hallway. What a perfect weekend it had been. The most perfect imaginable. She slid the mug down under the socks in her bureau, and just in time, too, for as she closed the door, Batty arrived with Bunty, who was now wearing the Eiffel Tower necktie. Hound followed closely behind, with at least four more neckties trailing off his back. I'm enjoying my present very much, said Batty. Did you tell Jeffrey how I am? Yes. Skye started unpacking the rest of her suitcase. Did you tell him about my red wagon and how much Hound and I adore it? Yes, though not so much about them adoring the wagon as about how annoyingly underfoot it always was. Did you tell him about me and Ben spying on Bugman? Strangely enough, I didn't mention that. Did you tell him I'm going to be a dinosaur for Halloween? It's much too early to talk about Halloween. It's a long time from now. It's not. Yes, it is. Now, good night and thanks for stopping by. Skye firmly escorted Batty, Funty, and Hound out of her room and closed the door behind them. Halloween. Rats on Batty for bringing it up. Skye's wonderful weekend in Boston was now truly over, for she'd just been yanked back into the harshness of real life. Why? Not because of Halloween itself. No. Because of what was happening the night after Halloween. The sixth grade performance night, she groaned. She hadn't thought of it once in Boston, but now it was back, its horror undiminished. Suddenly needing fresh air, Skye grabbed her binoculars, climbed out the window and onto her roof, and gazed woefully out over a dark Gardam street. What was she going to do about sisters and sacrifice? She looked up at the moon, but no help to come from that quarter. Despite what she'd said to Batty, Halloween and the awfulness that came after it weren't that far away at all. The sixth grade performance night was only two and a half weeks away. Actually, 19 days. Actually, 18 days and 23 hours. But she could have 18 years and 23 days and she'd never be ready to get up on stage as Rainbow. She'd already forgotten the lines she'd managed to memorize before she went to Boston. And even if she could re-memorize them, what about point dramatically upstage and embrace grass flower, Melissa, and gaze upon coyote with love, Pearson, and look noble while priests prepare for the sacrifice? Stupid Aztecs, stupid sacrifices, stupid play, she said out loud, stupid Jane. Sky knew it was low and cowardly to blame Jane. It was her own fault 
since she'd asked Jane to write the play in the first place. And if Jane wrote such a good play that it was chosen for the sixth grade performance night, that wasn't Jane's fault either. Just as it wasn't Mr. Gabell's fault that he'd chosen Sky to be Rainbow. Though Mr. Gabell probably was blaming himself for that now. He started getting headaches at every rehearsal. She screwed up her face in an imitation of Mr. Gabell with a headache. Can't you put some emotion into your voice, Sky? Remember, you're trying to sacrifice your life for your sister. Try to imagine how that would feel. How could she possibly imagine how that would feel? No one she knew had ever been sacrificed, and especially to have sacrificed herself for Melissa Pattonod. And that wasn't even the most humiliating part of the play. For in the final scene, she had to tell Pearson that she, he was the only boy he'd ever love or ever would love, let the maze be her witness. True. She also got to tell him that since she had to, had to devote her life to her people, he should go ahead and marry her beloved sister, Grassflower. But even that wasn't enough to wipe out the shame. Beloved sister. Bah! Sky glowered through her binoculars at the stars and reconsidered the falling off the roof idea. However, before she could once again weigh the pluses and minuses of a broken leg, there was a thump beside her, and Asimov appeared out of the darkness, purring and butting his head against her knee. Silly cat, why don't you understand that I can't stand you, she said, rubbing his ears. Forget about me taking you home again. There aren't any football drills to avoid tonight. But there was something else to avoid. For moments later, Jane was leaning out the window. Ready to dive back into rehearsals for Sisters in Sacrifice? That would be just great. But I have to take Iantha's cat home. Maybe when you come back. Maybe. Skye hoisted Asimov onto her shoulder and inched her way over to the trees. She'd climbed down this tree a hundred times, but never with a hefty cat along for the ride. Well, maybe he'd scratch her on the way down, startling her so that she'd fall and break her leg without having to do it on purpose. That would solve lots of problems. Asimov wasn't in the scratching mood, though, and Skye made it to the ground with both legs intact. It's not too late for you to bite me and cause an infected wound. No one would expect me to be rainbow with an infected wound, she told, told Asimov, hopefully. Unfortunately, he wasn't in a biting mood either, and soon Skye was next door, gloomily unharmed, ringing the doorbell. Iantha opened the door, laden down with Ben in his pajamas. Here's Asimov, said Skye. He was on my roof again. Oh, Asimov, said Iantha. Ben, tell him he's a bad cat. Ben had other ideas. Pretty, he said, pointing at Skye. I wish you wouldn't say that, said Skye, putting Asimov down and shooing him into the house. But you are pretty, said Iantha. Please don't, said Skye, and then she knew she'd been rude. I'm sorry, I just don't think I am, and I don't care anyway. I'd rather be amazingly intelligent. Martin, your father, says that you are. He's biased, and I can prove it. What does he say about Batty? That she has untapped creative genius. You see? Blindly biased, Skye sighed. How nice it must be for Iantha to already know she was amazingly intelligent. No one could ever force an astrophysics professor to be in an Aztec play. 
Diantha must have heard the, sky, the sigh, for she opened her door wider, inviting Skye to come inside. Which Skye did, for even having to look at Ben in his pajamas was better than going home to play practice. Did you have fun in Boston? asked Diantha. Jane told me you went to visit your friend Jeffrey. I did, thank you. Then without meaning to, Skye burst out. I didn't want to come home. Oh dear. Not because I don't like my family or anything, but because I have to star in a play in almost 19 days, and I'm dreading it. The Aztec play, said Iantha. Jane told me about that, too. She said it's quite well written. She would say that. Skye looked around for something to kick in frustration, but it's hard to find the right thing to kick in other people's houses. She should go home and kick some of Jane's stuff. I'm sorry to be grumpy. I better leave. Please don't. I have something I want to show you if you don't mind waiting while I put Ben into his crib. But Ben was thrusting out his chubby hands at Skye. Duck, he said. Or, better, you can put him in his crib while I set up my something. Iantha plopped Ben into Skye's arms. His room's at the top of the stairs. Come into the backyard when you're done. Horrified, Skye watched Iantha disappear into the other room. She didn't know anything about holding babies. The only one she'd ever held in her life was Batty when she was a newborn. And even that had been as seldom as possible, for Batty had always wailed when Skye picked her up. What would she do if Ben started to wail? Gingerly, she shifted his weight until he rested against her shoulder. He snuggled in and made a gurgling noise that she hoped didn't mean he was throwing up. But when she checked it, it seemed to have a happiness gurgle. So everything was all right thus far, but she still had to get him upstairs without damaging him. Up the steps she crept, holding Ben like a bomb that could go off any second. At the top, she stopped and sagged with relief. They were almost to his room, and that was the end of her responsibility. His little room was bright blue, with constellations painted on the ceiling in gold, and shelves piled high with ducks, big and small and in every color a duck could possibly be. Skye cared only for the crib in the corner, though, and got Ben to it as quickly as she could. Carefully, carefully, she laid him down beside yet one more duck, a tiny white one who'd been waiting patiently for his master's return. Please don't take my dislike of you personally, she told Ben, thrilled to have gotten him into his crib without mishap. I suppose you can't help being a baby. He blinked at her, wrapped one fist around the white duck's bill, and closed his eyes. Now what? Skye looked around, lost, then figured that the yellow and red checked quilt draped over the crib rail belonged on Ben, so she unfolded it and spread it over him, and realized he was already asleep. Without thinking, she leaned over and... What was she doing? She jerked upright and took two steps backward away from the crib. Insanity had come over her. She'd almost kissed Ben goodnight. She turned out the light and ran downstairs, light-hearted despite the near kiss. For she was wildly curious about what Iantha was doing in the backyard. Whatever it was would be interesting. An astrophysicist was incapable of being boring. Absolutely not boring. Iantha was setting up a telescope. An honest-to-goodness telescope on a tripod and everything. Skye pranced across the yard. Oh, Iantha! 
It's not really dark enough at this time of night, especially this close to town. But it'll do for what I want to show you. What? breathed Skye. Not that she cared. Seeing anything at all through a telescope would be fascinating. Now Iantha was pointing the telescope and adjusting it while looking through the eyepiece. She stood up and gestured for Skye to look. Skye leaned down and peered in. How beautiful. The whole eyepiece was full of a glowing, glimmering disk. Venus, said Iantha. The Aztecs called it Quetzalcoatl, which means feathered servant. Serpent. It was their symbol of death and rebirth. The Aztecs. It was the first time in weeks that Skye had been able to say that without a surge of dread. Why hadn't she ever thought about the Aztecs looking up at the sky? Just as she had from her roof. Iantha went on. I wish I could show you Pleiades, but they're hiding behind the Quigley Woods right now, down on the horizon. The Aztecs called them Tian Quetzil, and used their position in the sky to figure out when to hold ritual sacrifices. Though, not the sacrifice in your play, which Jane tells me is weather-related. Sky watched Venus and its shimmering loveliness for a long time, then reluctantly straightened up. Thank you. Does that make you feel any better about the play? asked Diantha. No. Sky was sorry to disappoint her. I really appreciate you trying to help, but it's not actually the Aztecs I mind. It's the acting. And I don't exactly mind acting as much as it terrifies me. Iantha was staring through her telescope again, moving it this way and that, then adjusting and refocusing. When I was in the fourth grade, I was supposed to be a flower in my school play. I didn't even have any lines, and I fainted before I had to go on. Skye tried to picture Iantha as a little girl, a sort of older Ben with long hair and a petal hat, fainting dead away. Is it hard to learn how to faint? I think it has to come naturally, said Iantha. Here, look now. Sky bent to the telescope. This time there was no glowing planet to see. There was only blackness. I don't see anything. Yes, you do. You're seeing dark matter. Iantha started to explain, and though Sky understood only bits and pieces, she was enthralled and wanted it to never stop. Terms swirled around her, ether and void and flux and flow and whirling gases and big bang and always this dark matter thing, a theory of what filled the vast regions between the stars. Then Iantha moved on to her own research and how she discovered something important about dark matter and would soon publish an article about it in a scientific journal and thus would add to the knowledge of astrophysicists all over the world who were all trying to explain how the universe began, how it's expanding, and how it will end, said Iantha. I've talked too much. No! But Skye wouldn't be able to give to talk like that. You were wonderful, and you have cheered me up. Who knows? Maybe the universe will expand so quickly in the next few weeks that life as we know it will end, and I'll never have to be in the play. I suppose we could hope for that, said Iantha. I do, I do, I do, answered Skye fervently. Soon after that, Skye ran home. Her terrible load of Aztec anxiety truly lightened. Sure, the universe expansion thing was a long shot, 
But really, anything can happen in 18 days and 23, no, 22 hours. Anything at all.